Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Monday, April the 18th, 2022. It is currently 8.31 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Well, it's that time once again. Let's see if I can if I can grab this. It is that time once again, ladies and gentlemen, to respond to an email. Uh, yeah, I did. I didn't have my prop ready because obviously I don't print out the emails. They're actually on my iPad. But I, whenever whenever we do an email response program, I'm supposed to have my prop ready where I can do this. It is time to respond to another email. I just. Does that even matter? Does it even add anything? Does anyone even care? I mean, it's 2022. People are probably going to be like, no one prints out emails anymore. So why? Why have that? Why have the paper for that sound effect? You know what? You're right. There's probably no real reason to do so, but just just to try to change things up a little bit, right? To to get your attention. But even though I'm going to be responding to an email, you may be tempted right now to go, you know what? I don't care. But you're going to care because this email raises a question about a book within the Bible that a lot of people have, well, let's just say strong opinions about. But in my own personal, my my own personal view is that many miss the major point of the book. And a lot of you are going to disagree with me, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through this email. Now, this is not a situation where, and I've just got to go ahead and get this out of the way. I'm going to do my best to pro- provide a an initial response to this email. That's what I'm going to do. I am not going to be able to spend, obviously, six months in this episode doing a verse-by-verse exposition of the chapter in which this person asks a question about. I'm not going to be able to do that, obviously, right? I mean, it's one episode. So this is an initial response. First, to try to help the person who wrote the email and hopefully help anyone else who struggles with this book and with some of the passages in the book that are similar to the one that I'm being asked about. Hopefully, this will be beneficial. But what's going to happen? Someone's going to be like, well, you didn't deal with this, and you didn't deal with this, and you didn't answer this, and what about this, and what about that? And everybody's going to just, you know, probably go crazy, start arguing with me. Just remember, I can't, this is a one, a one episode response that may lead to a greater study of all the related passages that are connected with this question, okay? So don't, don't get upset. What I simply want to do is try to present the person who emailed me and all of you, everyone listening, hey, here's this very famous book in the Bible. Everyone argues and, and debates it and, and disagrees and yells and fights and, 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 and people struggle with it. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, here's a perspective that everyone ignores, overlooks, or maybe they're not even aware of. And I'm going to try to offer this, let's say, a unique perspective. I don't believe it should be unique, but for some weird reason, no one ever (laughs) discusses the point of view I'm going to put forth. So hopefully it will be beneficial. Are you ready? Okay. What day was it? I don't even have the date in front of me. It was uh, maybe two days ago. It may have been Friday. It may have been Friday. So possibly Friday. I would have to go back and look. But I believe it was Friday. Um, I received an email, 
and uh, with someone asking a question in regards to the book of Hebrews. Now, if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, if you've ever studied the book of Hebrews, you know that there are some passages in the book of Hebrews that provide some very strong warnings. And many people have struggled with these warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And many people get into a big argument. So does this teach that you can lose your salvation? No, it doesn't teach you can lose your salvation. Yes, it does teach you 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 can lose your salvation. No, this teaches that a lot of people who claim to be saved were never saved. Well, then how do you know you were saved? And and it it just, it goes into a never-ending argument about eternal security of the believer, perseverance of the saints, maybe lordship, salvation. It It just turns into a soteriological discussion and debate meaning about salvation and can one lose their salvation? Can one fall away? If they do fall away, what can or can not a person who falls away, what can they do or not do? And it just, it just seems like, I mean, when you're new to the arguments, you may not realize it, but after years and years and years and years of just watching the arguments and the arguments and the arguments, you at, t- at times you start feeling like, that, you know, you're just on a hamster wheel, just running in a circle, going nowhere. And it, it at times it becomes, it feels like it's just vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless. A lot of people talking, very few people listening, and very few conclusions, and and which can be very discouraging and disheartening. So when I took my church through a verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews many years ago, And it took us a long time to make it through the book of Hebrews, a long time. I decided to approach the book in a way that was completely contrary to almost every commentary that I had in front of me. Because the commentaries would immediately find themselves getting involved in these debates and arguing and arguing and arguing. And I was just like, well, I can present the arguments that are already in all of these commentaries, but everyone already has these commentaries. Anyone can buy these commentaries. Maybe we should look at this from a different perspective. So that always puts me kind of in the, I guess, I, I have to sit at the kids' table. I have to sit at a different table because, I, you know, I don't, I don't go along with what most people say. And you may think that my perspective is absolutely crazy. You may think it's ridiculous. And that's perfectly okay. That, that's per- Look, No matter, this is very important when it comes to these passages in the book of Hebrews. In fact, this just comes true to almost anything you do with the Bible. Whatever perspective you put forth, whatever interpretation you give, you're absolutely guaranteed that there's going to be plenty of people out there who say you're wrong. So I just decided, well, since no matter what I say, someone's going to say I'm wrong, why don't I take a perspective where just basically everyone (laughs) says that I'm wrong. Okay, that really wasn't the goal, but it's kind of a a what has happened. But I just ask that you give my perspective at least, at least a chance. And, and when I say give it a chance, at least consider it, at least think about it. Because I do believe that I have a a good argument for it. And I, I think it's just based off context and a lot of other things. But let's just, let, let's not waste any more time. So let, let's get right to, I've got two emails here and I'm just going to read through them and just, just do my best to kind of answer anything and everything. If there, if I come across anything that I think is personal, of course, I'll change it up a little bit. So in other words, I may not read this word for word because I, I don't like to, 
you know, I like to keep anyone's personal communication personal, obviously, to the best of my ability. All right, here we go. Here's what we have. I've spent most of my Theology Central listening time on some of the more topical discussions, but I've appreciated the bits I've heard of the Bible study lessons as well. Well, let me stop right here, just so that people understand, because there's always new people listening. One of the things, I do like to do the topical things, right? I'll just, I'll find an article, something, and I'll just, I'll, I'll talk about a news article. It can be something on a Christian website, a secular website, and try to talk about what's going on in the world from a theological perspective. But I am very concerned that when you start going through the kind of the topical approach, you can kind of just become like a current events podcast. And, and in many cases, what can happen, you, sh- you just start chasing the next controversial story, or the next hot topic. And that can be fun, maybe entertaining, maybe controversial, but I feel that it, it, it gets Christians distracted because what we all need, what every Christian needs, is a constant diet of the infallible and errant word of God. It is our milk, it is our meat, it is, it is what we need. We need to desire it, we need to read it, we need to study it, we need to meditate on it, we need to talk about it, we need to think about it. That, that, that is God's word. So I try to balance it out that when I'm doing all of these other things, that every single week we dedicate an entire week to one passage of scripture. Currently we're dedicating basically eight weeks to one passage of scripture. But basically, it's usually one week, one passage of scripture. We call them the Bible study exercises. We have a curriculum that's free and available to anyone who would like it. You just email me at newsif at yahoo.com and say you want the curriculum. I send you a link, and then that link is a, makes it available every, every week you have the curriculum. Uh, we have a Bible memory app to help you memorize scripture, and then we, we dig in. We dig in. And the way I do the Bible study exercise podcast episodes is I give you assignments. I give you, you know, basically homework. You can send that to me, newsif at yahoo.com if you want accountability, if you want to participate. I, I do, sometimes I do some teaching. Sometimes I do the teaching in a way where, well, it could be this and it could be this because the goal is to get you actually involved in actual Bible study, not just listening to someone tell you what it means, but to get you involved in actually studying the text yourself. And so that's what we try to do. We have a Discord channel where people can discuss it and talk about it. So that's that we try to balance it out. So I'm glad you listened to the topical messages. Wonderful. I'm glad you've checked out a little bit of the Bible study lessons. But please, I would challenge you, you know, try at least to listen to the Bible study exercises, even if you don't participate because I think, I, I think that really offers the proper balance so that you're not distracted with whatever current topic that I am talking about. So I, I try to find that balance. I hopefully I, ha- I, I hopefully I have a good balance. If whenever I, I find myself not being as balanced as I should be, I try to go back and say, okay, we're going to maybe do another devotional message. Maybe, maybe do something else more to get our focus on the Word of God. All right? So... But the Bible study exercises, they're all there. If you have the Church One app, you, you can just go to the series, Bible study exercises. You'll see there's over 200, and uh, you can definitely check those out. All right, but I was wondering, this is what they ask, all right? If you have ever gone over Hebrews chapter 6, 
verses four through six. Now, as soon as I see the Hebrew six passage, I'm like, oh boy, here we, I know what's coming. I know, I know, I already know what's coming. And any good Bible student knows, uh-oh, the Hebrews question, the Hebrews six question, all right? And you pretty probably can already formulate how the question is going to go. But I'm like, oh, oh here we go. Now it says, I wonder if you've ever gone over Hebrews six, four through six in a similar deep dive, or if you'd be willing to do so for a future well, they say video. That means they may be watching us on YouTube, which is not actually video. It's audio, but I, I understand what they're saying. In a future episode, I'll, I'll state it that way. A couple of things. We went through the book of Hebrews as a church, verse by verse. That was years ago. Um, if I come across any of those sermons, maybe I'll start adding them to the Church One app. If I come across any of them, I think I have some thumb drives around where I may have some of those. If I do, I'll just add them kind of just as a, a special thing for people to start listening to. But that was a long time ago. And I would always say, this is very important, that whatever, I, however, whatever conclusions I came to in the past may not be the right ones. And that the past understanding always needs to be tested in the present. So right now we're in Matthew 24 for the Bible study exercise. And that's taking a lot of work. We're going we're gonna to probably definitely continue there. But at some point, I may try to bring in maybe an additional Bible study exercise or, or maybe um, when we finish some things up for uh, some different things we're working on at church, maybe we can go back and at least work on what, well, the similar passages in Hebrews that is a part of kind of a group of passages that Hebrews 6 would be a part of. We'll talk about them in a minute, all right? So we'll see what we can do, right? Now, it says, it's one of the scariest parts of the Bible for me. And as someone who has, a, who has someone in their life who has left the faith, I often find myself drawn back to the passage. Now, all right, so Hebrews 6, it's what, it's what we call a warning passage. Uh, I think most people identify five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. I believe there's five. Top of my head, I'm just going with the top of my head. And these passages scare people to death, right? They seem to scare people about, wait, am I truly saved? Can I lose my salvation? And if I lose my salvation, there's no way to get it back. And, and it just begins to raise all kinds of questions about salvation. Now, I, I just I have to say something right here. Whenever you come across a passage that is either one, frightening, confusing, difficult, unclear, there's been nothing but disagreement and confusion for 2,000 years of church history. It's always good to take a step back, right? Take a step back. Take a deep breath and say, let me set aside this controversy for a second and do this. This is controversial and it's dealing with which topic? So let's say it's a controversy dealing with salvation. Then just step back and look at all, find as many passages as you can about salvation other than the, the passage you're looking at that's so controversial, so frightening, so scary. And then you say, okay, because that may be confusing. That may be, in a sense, a passage that we'll call it in the dark. You're in the dark about. Well, when you're in the dark, go find the light. So you go find what's clear. You, you never try to figure out a doctrine or, or build a theology on that which is not clear, you go find all of the passages that seem to be so very clear, right? Passages that speak of that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. 
passages that seem to indicate that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And that all the all those the Father gives to the Son, he will lose none of them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have not probation, but everlasting life. In other words, go find every scripture you can find that is clear, that is as clear as they can possibly be. Find all of those. In fact, I mean, literally, I, I, I beg you to do this. These Hebrew pass, these passages in the book of Hebrews, clearly they do, they bring up all kinds of questions about salvation, eternal security. What happens if, you know, can you lose your faith? Can you get it back? It raises so many questions. Just, I would just challenge you, grab a notebook and just find every passage that seems to be clear about salvation. Every passage. And just write them down, write them down, and just read them and read them and read them. And then ask yourself, okay, this seems to be what is clear. Are these passages in Hebrews that seems to be saying something different? They've got to be interpreted in light of what is clear. You don't take all of the clear passages and completely change their clear meaning to fit the unclear passage. You clearly have to interpret the unclear in light of the clear. This is just a, a basic rule, I think, of hermeneutics and of good Bible study. So go find every scripture you can about the subject of salvation that you think is clear. Just make a list of them, all right? Just make a list. I'm almost almost, almost going to give you like a homework for the Bible study exercise, but that's what you should do. And just cling to what is clear, right? Man, if you if we try to hold on to what is unclear, you'll just spend yourself tossed to and fro because there's lots of things in the Bible that are not clear. So you got to go like, okay, what do I know? I, I don't know this, but I do know this. And I and I always say this whenever we're dealing with any passage, I'm always like, okay, let's let's try to figure out what can we know, what is absolutely clear. Okay, we, does everyone agree that this is clear? Yes. Okay, now let's go for the difficult part. The reason I do that. As we're climbing the ladder, trying to reach this interpretation of this very difficult, complex thing, there's going to be times we slip. There's going to be times we fall. And all of that that is clear is almost like a, a landing pad. It's safe. We can fall down and we're not hurt. And we're like, okay, I can at least stand here. Because you know what? We may have to try to climb that ladder to figure out the unclear 50 times. And sometimes all we can do is you know what? I still can't figure it out. Just crawl back down the ladder and stand on what is clear. That's why you always have to know what is clear. You've got to stand there. I, I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. All right. But he, he says, if we use the New American Standard, 1995, it says this. Now, this is Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. I'm going to use the translation he is providing, which is the New American Standard of 1995. And I do appreciate him identifying, or I think this is, yeah, I think it's a him. Um, yes, I think it, it, it's a him that he identifies for me. So I know exactly what translation he's using, but here we go. Verse four. For in the case of those who have been once, who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance 
since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That's Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Now, immediately, immediately, people go crazy here, all right? You have those who run to it and go, see, you can lose your salvation. See, you can lose your salvation. Church of Christ will go there. Some in the charismatic world will go there. You, this proves you can lose it. You can lose it. You can lose it. Others were like, no, 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 no. This doesn't prove that you can lose it. It proves that you can claim to be a Christian, and then it will be proven that you were never a Christian. So you got, you've got those who say that this, this just reveals the possibility of false professors, and others will say, no, this proves you can lose your salvation. And this divides into two camps almost like it becomes like a gang warfare, and then they argue and 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 argue. Now, he's going to provide, well, I'll just go ahead and read this. All right, I'll go ahead and read this. So the so basically you get into two camps. No, you can't lose your salvation. This is talking about fake people who are never truly saved. They came close, but they were never truly saved. And then they are exposed and they fall away. And those who, and, and then the others will say, no, this means you can lose your salvation. Now, this is very important. This would seem to indicate that if you believe that this either speaks of someone who's a false professor or someone who can lose your salvation, this would seem cl to clearly indicate that whenever these people, either they fall away or they lose their salvation, other, or they, they, they stop being a, a false professor and it's revealed that they were a false professor or they completely fall away or they, they completely lose their salvation. Whenever it happens, this seems to indicate that they can never be brought back. They can never be saved because it says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, what most people do is say, well, no, you can lose your salvation, but, but you can get it back. Okay, well, wait a minute. What about this? Others say, well, someone could be a false professor, and then, and then it become, they, be, they get exposed as a false professor, but they could still be saved. And then others say, well, they could reach a point where they could. People start making all kinds of exceptions here. But it seems clear that whoever these people are, that once, that, that, well, that they, they can't be saved. And then people start, you see, and then all of the arguments continue and people start making exceptions. This is what the emailer writes. The general consensus that I've seen among more conservative theologians who have covered it seems to have something, seem, it seems to be something along these, uh, along the following. Number one, they, they, those described in verses four through five are people who are actively involved in the religious life of the church and may have been, who may even appear to be saved, but whose salvation is not authentic. If these people leave the faith, they cannot return. The word used for impossible is the same word the author of Hebrews used in verse 18, where it's impossible for God to lie. This is because the rejection of the faith comes after having received full revelation, or at least as full as we can receive, and having consciously rejected it. Since there is no further exposure they could receive to the truth, there is therefore nothing rem remaining to draw them back. 
The leeway I've seen, I know it was either Piper or MacArthur, but I can't remember which, is that since we can't know who exactly falls under the umbrella of verses 4 through 5, we ought to never assume that someone falls under the condemnation described in verse 6, but presumably there are people who fall under that umbrella right. So, so a court conservative ones basically say, these are not real, these are not real Christians. They just look like a Christian, and but they're not really a Christian. And at some point, the, the game is up. The, the facade falls away and then they go back. But we, we can't ever be sure who these people are. So we can't really say, well, you can't be ever saved. In other words, we can't really know. We don't really know how to counsel someone because we can't really say, well, you can never be saved again. We have to treat people like it's possible that they could be saved again or are not saved again, that they could be actually become saved because they don't believe the people were ever, ever saved in the first place. All right. They go on to say, it's just a spooky section for me, um, this person that they know. Uh, they witness to this person when possible. And, uh, and the thought that this person could fall under verse 6 is terrifying. You mentioned in some of the podcasts that you love email discussions and that if we have questions, the odds are that hundreds of other people have the same question. So I'm hoping this one be, might be one, there, there might be one, there might be one that other people wonder about too. Let's stop right here. Okay, great, great question. Here's my thoughts. This is very important. I think everyone makes a horrible mistake here because immediately everybody runs to almost a kind of a soteriological approach. And I think instead of a soteriological approach, we need to take a historical approach. Now, immediately there's going to be pushback. But I think if you look at the historical context of Hebrews, I think it all. I think it. I think it changes everything. Here is how I understand the book of Hebrews, and I think I can prove this. First, everyone seems to agree. I don't think I've ever seen disagreement. This was written prior to seventy A.D. Someplace that as around maybe let's say sixty three, sixty five A.D. Some as late as 67, 68 AD, somewhere in the 60s, almost all sources agree with it. I'm not saying that there's not a source out there that may disagree with it. I'm saying it seems a consensus that this is somewhere in the 60s. Now, what happens in 70 AD? This is so significant. In 70 AD, Judaism, for all practical purposes, Judaism, in any true biblical sense, is wiped off the face of the earth. What exists after 70 AD, even today, is, is to me, a fraudulent, fake Judaism. It cannot be practiced anywhere like the Bible says. They don't have a temple. They don't have high priests. They don't have a sacrifice. They don't have the Holy of Holies. They don't have the Ark of Co- the Ark uh, the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have anything. Everything that's required for them to really carry out Judaism in a biblical way is all gone. It is destroyed. Judaism is a shadow. It is a it's a shadow where the reality no longer it's like here's the the reality is gone and it's just the shadow is left. Right. It's like, it's like typically, like typically, like right here is my hand and I'm holding it up to the light. I can see the shadow of my hand, but my, 
the reality is still here. Judaism is a shadow where the reality is gone. It's no more. It's a shadow of a reality that no longer exists. Now, that, that's a historical fact. It's written prior to 70 AD. And in 70 AD, Judaism is gone. Biblical Judaism no longer exists. Again, no priest, no high priest, no sacrifice, no temple, no Holy of the Holies, no Ark of the Covenant. I mean, literally everything is gone. Now, this is important. That means anyone, anyone hoping, clinging to, looking to Judaism is going to be left with absolutely nothing. There is zero chance of any salvation because Judaism cannot provide it. Judaism is no more. That's a historical, all, everything I just said is a fact. Hebrews is written prior to 70 AD, written in the 60s. 70 AD, Judaism is wiped off the face of the earth and you have a shadow without a reality. And anyone looking to Judaism has nothing to look to as far as salvation is concerned because it's all gone. There's nothing there left for them. Those are all historical facts. Well, if you look at Hebrews, it's called Hebrews, right? If you look, if you look to the book of Hebrews, it is Hebrews. That, that should give you maybe an idea of who the audience is, right? That should give you some idea who the audience could be and who it's written to, right? This would seem to indicate, this is the um, an epistle, a letter to the Hebrews. This would be a letter to the Jews. Now, some, there's some debate on this if you get into a lot of academic discussions about where, where, where was the letter sent? Some argue that the letter was sent actually to Jerusalem, Others say, I think Italy, I can't remember all the different locations if you read, read about it. But whoever, who, wherever it was sent, it was sent to Jews. It was sent to the Hebrews. Now, if you are a Jew and you've, you hear about this Christianity, you have to acknowledge there would be a struggle, right? Okay, I want to believe, maybe, maybe you want to believe in Jesus. Maybe you're tempted to not believe in Jesus and go back to Judaism. Right? So in other words, this is the context. It's to Jews. Jews who may be trying to hold on to Judaism. Maybe those who may be trying to go back to Judaism. Maybe to those who want to enforce Judaism, basically, and kind of make Christianity kind of a, a form of Judaism. Like you, you have a lot of things going on in this context. Now, this is written to basically warn the Jews, the Hebrews, Hey, you better look to something better. You better stop looking to the physical high priest. You need a better high priest. You better stop looking for the temple. You need a better temple. You better stop looking to the sacrifices offered in the temple. You need a better sacrifice. You need something better. And that better is Jesus in every way, shape, or form. Better high priest, better sacrifice, better everything. That's who you need, a better priest, a better everything. If you don't look to him, you're finished. You are done. There is no hope for you. 
So I'm not seeing what I listen. Let's make make this. I've got to make this very clear. I'm not anything I say here. I am no way pretending is perfect. But I will argue that every argumentation given about Hebrews 6 in the commentaries, none of them are perfect. Now, I completely reject the idea that this teaches you can lose your salvation because I believe the Bible, I mean, that that, that just destroys salvation. Look, here's the problem. I'll just state it this way. I don't believe someone can lose their salvation because I believe salvation is something God does for us. It's a work of God. I believe salvation is a work of God, not a work of man. God, I believe you go to Romans 8, God foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he He glorifies. God does every, it's all the work of God. He does it all. And if God is the one doing the work, and what am I saved by? I'm saved by an imputed righteousness by faith. I don't think I can look, and, and faith is given to me by God. It, even my faith is a gift from God. So I don't believe there's, I, I just think the Bible is too clear on the, the eternal nature of salvation. It's a work of God. He does the choosing. He does the calling. He does the electing. He does the saving. He does the justifying. He does the glorifying. It's all, and it's based on an imputed righteousness. I don't think there's any way that the lose your salvation thing doesn't work. I, I just, it just doesn't work. But the idea that, wait, 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 wait. You, you, you could, you could look like a Christian, but you may not actually be a Christian just leads to, well, then how do I know that I'm a Christian? And almost inevitably, this is what it, it turns out. See, Hebrews warns you that you better check yourself to see if you're really saved. So how do you check yourself? They almost come up with, here's, here's your t- test. Here's your test, right? Whether MacArthur had a test, I think it's 12, maybe 14 points in his test. Jonathan Edwards had a test. A lot of people in church history have provided this test. And the test is always look at your actions. Look at your actions. Do you do this? Do you love God? Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? And here's my problem with that. Number one, I'm looking to my practical righteousness to determine if I've received an infused righteousness. But you can't test an infused righteousness by the presence of a practical righteousness. Because by definition, an imputed righteousness doesn't make me righteous practically. It declares me perfect positionally. If I'm going to test my salvation by the presence of a practical righteousness, then I need to go back to Rome, which teaches that I'm saved by an infused righteousness, which I must cooperate with. So the problem is this is like, well, you could be saved, but we don't really know. Well, when am I ever going to know that I'm saved? Well, this, you can never have any true security because I could just look like that I'm saved, but at any point in time, I could defect from the faith and find out that I was never saved. This just leads to a never-ending time of confusion and doubt. So I have a problem with that to some level, and we could go into greater problems with it. But if we look at it from a historical perspective, look at how this would work. Hebrews chapter 6. For in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. I think that is clearly referencing the Jews, Israel, who received 
all of these blessings and all of these gifts. They have been enlightened. They had the prophets. They had the law given to them. They had the temple. They had God's, they had God's presence within the temple. They had all of these things, right? Uh, they have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, was with the, the nation of Israel, right? He, he, they, they tasted the benefits of this. They, they were recipients of all of this. We see a little bit of this. It's not the exact same language, but I'm just, I'm thinking of it because, uh, and I think it's also mentioned in other places in Romans, but especially in Romans 9, is because we've been preaching on this. Just, I'll just show you. Romans 9, all right? Uh, verse 4, who are Israelites? Now, this is how Paul, in, in, in the book of Romans, and we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but Paul, in the book of Romans, describes Israel this way. Who are Israelites? Pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and promises, who are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. And you can look at other parts in the book of Romans where it talks all, all the benefits that the Israelites had, that all, that all these benefits that Israel had received. And we, we, could, uh, we could go through and find them. I don't have it right in front of me. But there's another passage in Romans where it does the same thing. Here's all the benefits Israel had. I mean, Israel, their history. I mean, God called that nation he chose that nation. He did all of these wonderful things for the nation. He sent them prophets. They had the law given to them. God delivered them miraculously uh, through the Exodus. He led them by a pillar of fire and a cloud, and, and the Shekinah glory was in the midst of them. And we could just go on and on and on. Benefit after benefit after benefit after benefit after benefit. Uh, he gave them the tabernacle, gave them the temple, gave them the sacrificial system. Just benefit after benefit after benefit after benefit, all right? They had tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Israel saw all kinds of miracles and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. If they fall away, if the Jews don't, in a sense, follow where all the things that they have been given should have led them. Everything they were given, the law was supposed to lead them to Christ. The sacrifices were to point them to Christ. And all the covenants, all the promises, all the prophecies pointing to a coming Messiah, they had it all. And if they don't follow that to Christ, then in a roundabout way, they, in a sense, they crucify to themselves the Son of God. Who remember it was the it was Israel, it was the Jews who said, Let his blood be upon our hands. They are the ones who rejected him. They are the ones who denied him. In a sense, they are putting him to open shame again. Those they can never be saved because they are staying in their dead Judaism that is being destroyed in 70 AD. There, there's no place for them to go. There's no hope for them. There's no hope for them because they will not come to Christ. I think the idea is there is no hope for repentance unless they give up their Judaism and turn to Christ. 
I don't think the issue is is that they can never be saved, period. In fact, I believe that there's a promise ultimately to Israel and Romans in Romans 11 of them that Israel will be saved, but that at a, at a future time. But this is, I think, the idea that they, they've had all of this. They came so close. And then they were like, nope, we reject Jesus. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Let his blood be in us. Forget him. Forget him. Forget him. Forget. We're going to cling to our Judaism. We're, and Hebrews is like, keep clinging to your Judaism. You're not going to have anything. You're not going to have a sacrifice. You're not going to have a priest. You're not going to have a temple. You're not going to have anything. There's going to be no hope. There's going to be no salvation. I think this is primarily a warning to the Hebrews about holding on to their dead Judaism that can't even, well, can't even be practiced according to the Bible, and it was all about to be wiped off the face of the earth. That is what I think is being referred to here. I really do. I know not everyone agrees, but it, it's so much easier to deal with it this way than getting into a never-ending argument about, well, can you, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, it goes on to say, for the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh often upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessings from God. But that which beareth thorns and briar is rejected and, he, uh, and nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. And that just right there just reminds me a little bit of, say, Deuteronomy, the promises of blessing and cursing, rain, your crops. A lot of this just seems to be speaking language that would be very much connected to the Jews. In fact, if you read the entire book of Hebrews, it everything it mentions is connected to Judaism over and over and over. And look at all of the phrases that are repeated over and over. It keeps going back to the Old Testament. I think even that seems to kind of go back to the Deuteronomy idea of, of blessings and curses. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Now that you are the Hebrews and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. See, it, uh, this is referring to the Hebrews, even that you, you, he's referring to the Hebrews, to the Jews. That to me is the only way to even come close to getting a grasp and a handle on the book of Hebrews. Now, they go on to say this. Um, you mentioned in an earlier podcast that, that you know, we went through Hebrews in the past. How far back was that? I'd like to dig those episodes up and listen to them. Hebrews is a fascinating book. And again, we'll have to see what we can do. I guess keeping the historical context in mind, I still wonder how exactly Hebrews 5, 11 through chapter 6 through 20 ought to be looked at and applied to a more modern context. It seems to be a big interlude where the author says, I'd love to tell you more about Jesus as high priest, but y'all aren't ready for that yet. Uh, however, here's the importance of pressing on and not falling away and the consequences of falling away. There are a lot of reminders in Hebrews about the dangers of falling away, chapters 3, 4, 6, 10, and 12 at least. But for some reason, 6 and the impossibility seems to stand out more than the rest, except for maybe 12, 29, for, with, for our God is a consuming fire as a warning for those who would fall away. Now, um, I think, again, we, 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 we get, personally, I think we, 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 we are always too quick to try to apply it to a modern context. Um, 
I was going to go back to Hebrews 5 and start working through it. Here's what I would say. Don't worry about applying it to a modern context first. Apply it to the people it was written to, Jews facing the destruction of Judaism within maybe five, four, three, maybe even two years from the time they received the letter. All right? Keep it in that context. All right? Everything they know religiously is going to cease to exist. All right? It's like... It's hard to even wrap our minds around how significant 70 AD is in a biblical framework. It's just hard to understand. So first, just focus on that. What does this mean for the Jews? What does this mean for the Hebrews in light of 70 AD? Now, what can we draw from it? Well, the application for us is constant. Christ is not just for us better. Christ is everything. Christ, like from a Gentile perspective, I I don't go looking for other high priests, but we go look for all kinds of other alternatives and, and other, we look to everything else. And the book of Hebrews is a reminder to anyone, Jew or Gentile, it's Christ. Don't go look for anything else. Don't go look for a supplement. Don't go look for an alternative. Don't go look for a counterfeit. It's Christ. Christ is Christ is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the temple. And he's, in, and he's the mercy seat. He is everything. It's a reminder to us, don't look anywhere else. For, for, for Jews, they would look to Judaism. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. Jews would look to their religion for salvation. Gentiles would probably look to their good deeds and works. Jews may look to their physical high priest, their physical sacrifice, their physical religious structures. Gentiles, we look to into it in a sense, our, we are the high priest and our, our sacrifices are our good deeds. We look to ourselves. For anyone, don't look anywhere else. Look to Christ. He is superior. He is better. He is sufficient. We don't need anything else. We don't need to look to anything else. That is the modern application. But the specific historical application is to the Hebrews. That, does it answer everything? No. I'm not going to even pretend that it does. It would be ridiculous to say that it does. Because when you get into these complicated passages, for whatever, look, it doesn't matter. You can have someone who say, this doesn't teach you can lose your salvation. And the people who say that you can lose your salvation were like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Right? And for those who say, no, this doesn't teach you can lose your salvation. They will look to the people who say you do and say, well, what about this? And what about this? No matter what you offer, there's, gonna, there's, not, there's still going to be questions that cannot be necessarily clearly answered. But I don't believe a person that God saves. Here's the thing. Here's what I would say. If you look at uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and I'm just going to borrow this because this is what we're currently studying. Romans 8 ends with this amazing, or this that chapter contains this amazing discussion about salvation, that my salvation is all the work of God. He foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies, we, he, there's an election placed in, in there as well. We are elected. And that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And in, in Christ, I'm more than a conqueror. Everything's wonderful, right? And then all of a sudden, that stops. And in 9, 10, 11, Paul in Romans decides, I'm going to talk about Israel for three chapters. 
And it leaves a lot of commentary commentaries to go, what in the world? What is this? A lot of people say you could just go from Romans 8 to chapter 12 and just skip 1911 and the book would make sense because 1911 seems completely out of place. But I disagree. I think the reason Paul talks about Israel in 1911 is because Israel, God made all of these covenants, all of these promises with the nation of Israel. And even though they've been unfaithful, even though they have failed, God is not done with them. He has set them aside, blinded them for the time being to the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled, and then he will return to them and fulfill every promise, and I believe in a literal way. Well, this proves that God remains faithful even, even when we're unfaithful, and that Israel is proof that when God saves, he keeps, he preserves, because he keeps his promises. So God God will ultimately save Israel. Now they were going to suffer. They're going to be set aside. And individual Jews during these times may not obviously aren't saved. And they die without Christ. There will be a time of a national salvation of Israel. But the point is, is that God didn't, it keeps his promise to the nation, which gives us confidence that our salvation is secure because of the promises God has made to us. So to go to Hebrews and take these warning passages and then start calling into question people's salvation seems to go against the very nature of salvation itself. I believe 70 AD is the hermeneutical clue to interpreting the book of Hebrews. I don't think it's a soteriological like, I'm an Arminian, I'm a Calvinist, I'm a, a Pelagian, I'm a semi-Pelagian. Getting into all of those discussions, no, 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 no. I believe that it's an understood historical to the Jews, warning them that their system is going to go away. And holding to that, turning to that, clinging to that, not going to Christ, they're finished. There is no sacrifice. There is no salvation. There's nothing because Judaism is a shadow with no reality. All right, I'll stop right there. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com, right? We'll see how people respond to this, newsif at yahoo.com. Look, I... I, you're, I know you're going to try to immediately, I just got to say this because I, I like saving myself time. Some of you are going to immediately argue and you're going to either argue with me that this teaches you can lose it or that it teaches to, uh, about people who claim to have it but never had it. I know both of those positions. So probably whatever argument you send me, it's going to be the same argument that's in every other commentary, either teaching you you can lose it or teaching that these are people who never had it. I mean, you can send me those positions. I had to write papers from citing those positions in different Bible colleges and seminaries. So I, I know those positions. You can try to give me those points again. Maybe you have a unique point, but I just want you to just realize, look, you, if you want to believe that, that's fine. All I'm saying is, okay, you're, you're already convinced, great, but maybe consider a perspective that maybe you've never heard or even thought about. Because I think the historical perspective is constantly ignored. That's like nobody stops and go, this is written to the Hebrews. This is this has a Jewish application. No, immediately we just start jumping into arguments about Arminianism, uh, Calvinism, preter, uh, not preterism, 
Pelagianism and just on it and just everybody just starts going crazy there. And I'm like, wait, I think everyone's missed the entire point. Personally. I mean, he keeps saying you, you like the writer of Hebrews constantly is referring to someone. He's referring to the Jews, to the Hebrews. So, all right, I'll start right there. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great evening. God bless.